Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. And hear now God's word as he speaks to us through it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you are tender-hearted and loving to us. You have forgiven us a, a great debt, an infinite debt that we owe against you. And we do pray that you would soften our hearts this morning, that you would make us tender-hearted toward you and toward one another, that we might uh, even reflect your tender-hearted love for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The classic story, The Count of Monte Cristo, is one of the greatest revenge tales ever told, it, uh, or at least of modern history. Um, it tells the story of uh, an Edwin Dantes, Edmund Dantes, who was a young and honest man who fell victim to envy and betrayal, and he was uh, wrongly imprisoned at a harsh prison called the Chateau d'If. And uh, while he was there, uh, over thir- the course of 13 years, he, his anger grew over his wrongful imprisonment, as did his resolve to get out of that prison and to uh, find vindication for uh, the wrongs that were done to him. And there was a singular phrase that I think fueled his drive to escape and find this vindication, and it was this. It said, God will give me justice. And when he eventually did escape from prison, that's exactly what uh, Dantes did, was he uh, used the rest of his life to pursue justice and vindication for the wrongs that were done against him. And while thankfully most of us, if not all of us, have not been wrongfully imprisoned over a long period of time, uh, we, we do face unjust suffering from time to time. We, uh, we have been scorned or ridiculed in ways that are uh, ways that we don't want to be ridiculed or scorned. Uh, we, we've been passed over for honors or promotions or things that we think that we deserve or, or other things where we've um, received suffering that we don't expect or want or we don't get the desires of our hearts that we want. And I think for most of us as Christians, we would probably say, God will give me justice. You know, there, there will be a day, we, we cling to a hope that one day God will make all wrongs right, and he will set the world in the way it ought to be. And yet, we're impatient for that. We want, we want that justice now. And the way that I think we tend to try to in, in, exact that revenge is with our anger. Uh, anything from explosive, passionate wrath to cold and seething bitterness. Um, we, we look for ways to get, get back at those who have harmed us. And so when we come to this, this exhortation in verse 31 and 32, you know, all these five exhortations that Paul has given to us require a degree of Christian character of putting off a life of 
ungodliness and putting on a life of godliness, but this one may be the most comprehensive and requiring the, the greatest amount of Christian maturity because the heart of this particular exhortation is simply this, that um, in Christ Jesus, we need to be tender-hearted toward one another, uh, even or especially towards those who do us wrong and harm us. Um, so as has been the, the outline for each one of these exhortations, so it is here, there is a put off, a put on, and here's why. Uh, the, the, the outline here is we, we must put off hard-hearted anger. We must put on tender-hearted kindness. Um, and, and the reason is because God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. So passage starts, he says, um, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. We are to put off hard-hearted anger. And he lists out these six different forms of anger. And some commentators see a progression of anger. Um, I think it's more accurate just to see a more comprehensive list, not necessarily a taxonomy of anger, but just different aspects of anger that we express in our hurt. First, there's bitterness. That's an internal reaction that is a stubborn and persistent uh, reaction that causes us to have a heart against the person who has offended us. Then there's wrath. This is a passionate uh, expression with, that um, is, is overflowing anger. Uh, with either inward or outward, but it is uh, it, it's going to the, the strength of the emotion. Then there's just simply anger. Um, this would be a strong and settled hostility, uh, perhaps indicating that there's a desire for revenge or retribution. Um, next, after anger, he says clamor. So clamor goes to the volume of our voice using um, uh, strength of words or caustic words, as we talked about last, last week, corrupting words in the midst of our anger to overpower and to gain victory over our, our offender. Uh, then there's slander, which now we've taken our words and maybe gone behind the back of the other person, where we're trying to tear down the reputation of the person that offended us. We're trying to bring other people into that picture of our hate and our hurt. And then finally, there's malice, which is just a general all-encompassing um, sense of ill will, uh, perhaps desiring or even plotting evil against uh, the person who has offended us, and perhaps even encompassing some of these other five from bitterness to slander. And um, lots of different forms of anger, but they're all forms of that anger. And they're everything from a loud form of anger to a quiet form of anger, from an in-your-face to the behind-the-back, uh, behind-the-scenes type of anger. And none of them are constructive. None of them are upbuilding. None of them are bringing about any kind of unity um, in the body. And none of them are in the abstract either. It, we, we become angry because someone, some person has offended us. And 
Every, all, every one of these is anger directed at people who have brought about these offenses. Um, they do, and they're sinful, and they're destructive, and they do damage to the body of Christ. And so he says we must put that off, and instead we must put on tender-hearted kindness. He says, put those away, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So the original uh, hearers of this particular text would have clearly heard a play on words in the Greek. The Greek word for the Lord Jesus Christ is the word Christos. Christos is the name for Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the word Paul uses for kindness is the word Christos. Christos and Christos. As if Paul is saying, put on kindness, but remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his kindness to you, his kindness to us in the way that he lived, what he in his sacrifice for us. There is an intentional uh, coupling that Paul does with both this, this act of kindness and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't, it says it's not kindness for kindness sake, but it flows out of a tender heart. He says, uh, you know, be kind to one another, tender hearted. Um, perhaps you are, think of the words of the new covenant promises where God said that I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh, one that is tender and uh, loving and warm. And truly that, uh, that uh, tenderheartedness is ultimately directed towards our God, that we are hard-hearted against our God by, in our sin, but God takes that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh so that we might uh, be overcome by his love and his compassion for us and we might praise him and live for him it's also towards one another that our, our relationship with our Heavenly Father must translate into our relationship with our brothers and sisters in, the Christ, in Christ. And so as we are warmed and softened and tenderized in our relationship with our God, we ought to and must become tenderhearted towards one another. And one, one such aspect, in addition to kindness, is this aspect of forgiving one another. So the word Paul uses for forgiving could literally be translated acting in grace toward one another. It is not treating that person as they deserve, but giving them forgiveness, giving them kindness, giving them forgiveness, forgiving the offenses that have been committed against uh, us. And with each one of these exhortations, it almost seems like there's a form of replacement therapy that, that the Apostle Paul is doing, almost like a replacement theology. But you need to put this away, but you need to put, you know, put this other thing on. But it's never been replacement for the sake of replacement. This isn't some kind of divinely ordained anger management course where God simply says, well, you need to stop being angry, you need to start being tenderhearted. There's always a reason that is Christ-centered and God-oriented. And, and that is this. In this case, we must be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And friends, this is the great and glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that God in Christ has forgiven us, has forgiven you of your sins, that you have offended him with an infinite debt of your sins against his holiness, and that you have deserved his wrath, full payment for those offenses. And yet God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you in his kindness. He has given you the most amazing gift. And he didn't even stop at the gift of forgiveness, but he lavished on you every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And it, so this, this call that we ought to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us drips with God's grace for you and for me. And so when he says um, forgive as God in Christ forgave you, I think there's both forgiving, we must forgive because God in Christ forgave us, but also in a like manner, in, this, in, in a similar way that God forgave us, we must forgive one another. So as we kind of reflect on the passage for just a little bit, uh, it seems clear that the focus of his passage, of, of this exhortation, is on dealing with how we live when wrongs are committed against us. Offenses are committed against us. Now, you might remember from just a few weeks ago, Paul had commanded us that we are to be angry and not sin. We were given that exhortation to be angry. And we, what we said at that time was that we, we need to be taught that um, we, we, should, we ought to be angry at sin because sin is an offense against God and it's not necessarily natural for us as sinners, as offenders against God, for us to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. And so we're called to hate that. So we had to be taught there. But when it comes to offenses against us, I don't think we need to be taught to, be, to hate those things, to be angry in those cases. It comes naturally. In fact, we, we immediately get angry and, uh, and, it, and we respond in sinful anger um, because we feel the infuriating pain of being offended. And the, James talks about the fact that our anger comes from the desires that are reasonable desires that rage within us and we, we want something and we don't get it. Um, so, you know, we might, it might be a good desire for people to feel love from other people, to be liked by other people. But we can take that desire and we can turn it into something that is an idol. And to the point where if somebody doesn't like us or somebody speaks ill of us, we respond with a response that is ungodly and unholy. Or um, we, we are called to grow in wisdom and knowledge of who God is. And yet when somebody calls us foolish or insinuates that we're unintelligent, uh, there's a bitterness that grows that draws a wedge between our heart and that person where we want vindication. We might begin to slander their character or something of that case, you know, and, and so Paul, James says, we want something and we don't get it, and so we kill and we covet. We covet that which we don't have, and we kill. We murder with the angry response 
that we have. One of these, and that's exactly what I think Paul's talking about in these six different descriptions of anger. These are ways that we murder one another with our anger. You know, whether we're talking about bitterness or wrath or somewhere in between. None of them pursue unity. But like what we talked about last week with corrupting talk, talk that tears down versus talk that builds up, these are all corrosive in nature. They just destroy the unity. They, uh, it, they do not build up the body. And so what we need to do is we need to look to Christ and be transformed in our thinking so that we know how we ought to live in a way that's pleasing to him. And when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, he came as a man in a world of poverty and suffering. He intentionally took on flesh in a sense where he would suffer. And he was ridiculed, and he was scorned, even though he was absolute truth. He was considered a foolish heretic, and yet in the midst of all that, he didn't retaliate. He didn't grow embittered. He didn't, um, he didn't fight back. In fact, the Psalms were his Psalms. And if you read through the Psalms, right through the, the, the Psalms are these prayers, Vindicate me, O Lord, according to your holiness. Uh, Equip me according to your loving kindness. The Lord Jesus knew that God would give him justice, but he wasn't looking for justice here and now. And as Jesus marched to the cross, Ephesians says he did so with the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He knew that God would give him justice, that God would right every wrong, and he entered into that type of offense where he was literally beaten and spit on and uh, ridiculed. And Scripture says that he was like, he he, he didn't engage in clamor, uh, but like a lamb before the shearer is silent, he didn't open his mouth. But he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He knew that God would judge justly, that God would bring justice. And so he went to the cross. And praise God that he did because because of his faithfulness in that regard, because of his willingness to trust in God's ultimate justice, that's the hope of our salvation. He was willing to endure that. And even now, if you remember in Ephesians, Paul says that God has raised Jesus up above every power and he has seated him in the heavenly realms and submitted everything under his feet. But even now, the Lord Jesus is patient. He endures offenses against his holiness. And he does that so that he can extend mercy. He's, he bore patiently for you and for me, even while we continue to sin against him, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might receive grace, so that we might be able to cling to Christ. He could have poured out his wrath. He would have been justified in doing so, and yet he didn't do that for us. He is infinitely kind. Our God is infinitely kind, and Paul says elsewhere that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That because he is, he is kind so that we would repent, and we would repent of our anger, and we would put on our this tenderheartedness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if 
God has shown his tender heart to you, and if Christ endured these things tenderly for you, how can we, how can you, how can I respond with such hard hearts, clinging for justice and vindication with a hard heart against our brother and sister in the here and now? Um, God gives us the opportunity to become, uh, having been objects of his kindness, we can now become agents of his kindness. And we've been objects of his forgiveness. We've received his forgiveness. And now God is giving us an opportunity to be agents of his forgiveness. Um, And this requires a supernatural softening of our hearts. Our hearts are not, our hearts are hard. And even coming to Christ, we need to be constantly softened by the love of Christ, the love of our God. And God promises to do that, to take away that heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. And just as Jesus endured these things for the joy that was set before him, we can do, we can endure these things for the joy set before us. Think about all the things that Paul has said that are ours, really ours. He says that God has given us every spiritual blessing. He has given us his very self. He has adopted us into his family. He has given us an inheritance in heaven that is secure. He has given us a deposit of his Holy Spirit, which is transforming us from the inside out. He is giving us joy. He's building us together as a body of brothers and sisters who love our Savior and our Father together. He's blessed us with all these things with this beautiful, eternal inheritance. And that it far exceeds anything that we could grab for, any amount of justice or vindication that we could get on the here and now. It ought to fuel our patience and fuel our grace for one another. I think it could be said that Christian kindness is probably one of the most distinctly Christian character traits that we can put on as believers. And by kindness, we don't mean well, we need to be nice. Um, it's, it's a mature and a deep love for one another that even in the midst of other people's failings or wrongs, um, we pursue them in love. Uh, kindness gives up or is willing to give up our particular desires or our demand for justice uh, for the sake of our brother and sister, for the sake of reconciling and having that unity that God gives, uh, promises us. And it requires a tender heart. And tender hearts, having a tender heart is risky. You know, we, we are Presbyterians that like to be, you know, to the point, and we're, we don't like to be touchy-feely about our hearts and our emotions. Uh, but we're called to tender-hearted love for one another. And it's risky because tender hearts can be hurt. Uh, you expose your heart, and you will feel that pain more acutely. But a tender heart experiences joy, a joy that can't be experienced when you protect your heart. And it's, it's a heart that is eager for reconciliation, and so it pursues after reconciliation, and it finds reconciliation. And so it experiences the joy of um, being able to forgive and rejoicing in that forgiveness and that reconciliation that comes in Christ. And there's a winsome attractiveness to kindness, too. Um, the uh, church history father, 
St. Augustine, that's not St. Augustine, that's a type of grass in Texas. St. Augustine was the church history father. Uh, he ultimately came to faith um, by a bishop named Ambrose, and Ambrose was known for his eloquent teaching. And Augustine said in reflecting on his conversion of faith, he said, it wasn't your great teaching, but that you were kind to me. And perhaps, I hope, that you have someone that has been in your life that has demonstrated to you a degree of kindness that is something that the world does not know. And that has warmed your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and has reflected that love. And what Paul's saying here is that you and I have the gift of being able to be agents of that same kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ can work his kindness through us. And what a, what a blessing and a joy for us to be able to be that for a brother or sister in Christ. Now, it's important for us to talk about forgiveness, uh, to define what forgiveness means, because there's a lot of um, false understanding for this. I would say true forgiveness, could, you could define it like this, true forgiveness is a decision. It's a decision by the one who forgives to no longer hold the offense against the one who was the offender. It's a decision to no longer hold the offense against them. Uh, author Ken Sandy offers four different points that I think are helpful. He says, I, if I say that I forgive, this is what it means. I will not think about it, this offense, any longer. I will not bring it up or hold it against you. I will not talk to others about it, and it will not hinder our relationship. So those are four very difficult things. If you've been deeply hurt and offended, I will not think about it, I will not bring it up, I will not talk to others, I will not hinder my relationship. That is a costly and a difficult decision for us to make. We are releasing control of that offense, and we are choosing reconciliation over harboring the pain of what came before. But that's what our God's done for us. Notice it, it's, not, um, it's not the same as forgetting. Forgetting is a passive thing, which gets easier for some of us as we get older. Uh, but forgetting is not the same as choosing not to remember. Our God does not forget anything and yet he says, I remember your sins no more. He's choosing not to remember them, not to harbor them, not to let them come in between us. And so that's, that's the call for us, is to no longer remember them. Um, and it's also not excusing the offense. Um, forgiveness, full forgiveness, true re forgiveness requires repentance and speaking the truth in the midst of the situation. And I'll give you an example. Let's say you were in the midst of uh, a situation with a brother or sister in Christ, and what had been a cold war of bitterness and frustration turns into a war of words that is a hot war with explosive language. You get personal, you get caustic, and finally there, becomes a, there comes a ceasefire, and, but there are battle wounds on both sides. And after a period of time, one person comes up to the other and says, 
I'm sorry that that happened. I was tired. You made me mad when you said this. And the other person says, well, that's okay. Brothers and sisters, that is not forgiveness and that's not reconciliation. First of all, it's not based on truth because nothing about that situation was okay. Our God never says when we confess our sins, you know what, that's okay, no big deal. Our God says, that was offensive. That, that was against my holy word. But I love you and I forgive you. That was a debt that needs to be paid. And yet I forgive that debt because I love you. And it's also not uh, true reconciliation because there's no real repentance. We tend to apologize for things such as, well, I'm sorry that that happened. Well, of course, we're all sorry that we, nobody wants to get into conflict. But apologizing that we were in the conflict isn't really recognition of what actually happened. Or we'll apologize for something else or we'll uh, confess other people's sins. You made me mad when, when you said this. Uh, true repentance is confessing our own sin with sorrow and shame with no intent to repeat it and doing it willingly, uh, not under compulsion, with a desire to turn from that sin and to turn to the righteousness that God has called us to and uh, for reconciliation in the relationship. So in that instance, maybe a, a more accurate form of reconciliation would have been this. I am sorry that I treated you the way that I did. I have some deep-seated pride in my heart, and the words that you said triggered something in me, and I reacted poorly to those things. And I was, it didn't help that I was tired. That's no excuse. I cannot treat you this way, even when I'm tired. Um, I love you, and I'm sorry that I hurt you. I know that my words will leave scars, and I I'm sorry, that is certainly not what I want. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And the other person might say, yeah, you deeply hurt me. Those words cut to my heart, and I will have a hard time dealing with that. But I love you, and I, I want us to be reconciled. I, I do forgive you. That's a picture of reconciliation that admits and confesses the wrong and admits the hurt. And yet, hand in hand has a desire to move forward in reconciled love. Now, um, there are times where re true repentance just isn't possible. Um, either the other person is unwilling to repent or they can't. You know, Maybe you are harboring hurt or offense against somebody who's no longer alive. Um, there are times where that type of perfect uh, reconciliation isn't possible. In, in situations like that, there are some theologians that speak of a distinction between what is called attitudinal or an attitude of forgiveness and transacted forgiveness. And, and attitudinal forgiveness is simply this, that you, as the offender, out of love for the other person, put yourself into a position where you are ready to forgive and you are eager to forgive. You are eager for reconciliation. And that ought to always be the first step of reconciliation. And But the second part, the transacted, is when the offender actually comes and says, 
I confess my sin and I'm asking for forgiveness. And the offended grants forgiveness out of love for the relationship. And both of those need to be in the heart of each one of us because that's the way that our God treated us. Our God, we our offenses well preceded our faith and our repentance, and yet God pursued after us in love. He, he spoke to us. He was patient with us. He was ready for that repentance. He had that attitude, and yet the forgiveness was transacted when we confessed our sins in full-throated repentance and trusted in Christ Jesus. And so both of those must be true in our lives. And, you know, as we wrap this up, God calls us to this heart of tender-hearted love towards one another, this kindness and this forgiveness. And this is how God works his uh, sanctifying love through us. And yet it has to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a this is something, uh, the spirit that is at work within us is working this out, but it must only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a beautiful picture of this come, came in the life of a uh, woman, Cory Den Bloom, or Ten Bloom. She was a Dutch woman who lived in World War II, and uh, she and her family harbored uh, protected Jews uh, from who were being uh rounded up in the midst of the war, and she and her family were ultimately arrested and taken to concentration camps. And while they were at the concentration camp in Ravensbrück, her sister uh, Betsy had prayed for the soldiers that were brutally beating some of the, the people that were there, the, some of the women, and prayed that the Lord would forgive them of this brutality. And uh, her sister was ultimately killed in the camp, but Corey was released. And after she was released, she spent time teaching on God's forgiveness. And um, after the war ended, she was, you know, trying to help people understand the need for forgiveness, even in the midst of the brutality of the Nazi regime. And what she saw was, she said that, you know, all the people that needed to be have this healing after the after the war all needed to understand the same notion of forgiveness whether it was forgiveness for their neighbors who had uh, told on them and they had and they had been sent to the camps or they were the brutality of the of the uh, officers the the soldiers or um, even or the guards you know and and she so she understood that but it never hit close to home until it, she had to deal with that in her own situation. And in her, in her book, The Hiding Place, she, she recounted this uh, event from years after the war. She said, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. I can't imagine being faced with 
that, you know, the immensity of God's grace that he would forgive even that offense. And I don't know that I would have been able to move forward in, in, in forgiveness. And this is what she said. She said, his hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I who had preached so often to the people of Bloomingdale that need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark or warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened from my shoulder along my arm and through my hand. A current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Beloved, that, that, that is our hope. Not, not on our ability to forgive, not on our ability to love our enemies, but that we have been loved and forgiven and that God is promising to love through us, to give us that which we do not have. May that be said of us, that we would be tender-hearted in Christ Jesus, forgiving even as our God has forgiven us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your grace is far more abundant than ours ever would be. Thank you that your grace towards us is far more potent than it, we think it should be. Uh, we know our hearts are cold and hard, and yet you continue to love us. Would you warm our hearts towards one another, towards yourself? We, we would love to reflect the love of Christ in a way that magnifies him through our lives. So would you do that? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.